Hey, Brian. Hey, Dan. Hey, listeners, and welcome to a very special 83rd episode of The Goods, a film podcast. This is a special episode for a whole bunch of different reasons, Brian, and we're going to talk about some of them. But before we dive into that, how you doing so far? Hey, pretty good. This has been a, a good week for me, I would say. And yes, uh, this is a special occasion that we are naming Hanksgiving. Yes, Hanksgiving. Hanksgiving. The merriest of holidays. Brian, what's Hanksgiving? Hanksgiving is when we gather together to celebrate America's dad, the one and only Tom Hanks. That's right. Tom Hanks. We're going to be counting down our top five favorite Tom Hanks movies after we discuss a thematically relevant Tom Hanks movie. Uh, because another reason this is a very special episode, listeners, is I had one of the wildest weeks of my life the past week. Actually, I think given when we're recording, it's either exactly two weeks or close to two weeks since we last recorded, Brian. Uh, we had a little bit of a, a hiccup because of everything going on in my personal life. Right. It's the longest gap to date. It, you know, the episodes have popped up on your feed maybe at differing rates, but this is the longest we've gone between recording episodes since September 2020. Really? I didn't know we had quite reached the max of the gap, but in my excuse, the, the two things that happened to me this week, I think, justify the nearly two week delay. So first is I moved to a new house. I've been talking about it. I've been working on it now for months and months and months. We finally did it. I took two days off work. Me and my wife did. We spent two whole days packing up our house. And that was after we had already done some prep packing. Movers came on a Saturday, spent all day moving and reassembling furniture. And then we were at our new house. And our, the next day, our daughters came. And so that was quite a bit of effort. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I love this house, this new house. I'm excited to invite you over at some point. It's a cool house. Not too far from where we were, but it's got a little more space. It's a nicer location. We knew we wanted to move before my four-year-old started kindergarten, which would be uh, next fall. And so we, we went and did it now. So that's one big life milestone for me, Brian. The second one so I, I mentioned my daughters came back the day after we moved. Uh, that evening, I started to feel a little little tired, very slight sore throat. Woke up at about 1 a.m. with like the worst fever dreams, head spinning, maybe of my adult life, like super intense muscle cramps. Just felt like absolute trash. And... The next day, I got the news that my parents, who had helped us pack a little bit, had tested positive for COVID. That day is the worst that I have probably felt, at least like physically, in my adult life, Brian, or, or close to it. Wow. I had, when you get like a really bad colds or the flu, do you ever get like muscle aches? Like you feel sore? Not, not in a long time, but I can relate a little bit i for one have not had covid so i guess you you said your parents tested positive did you test positive so that's the the interesting thing is i tested negative and i i had everything they say that everybody gets with covid which is fever muscle cramps 
congestion, sore throat, and I was just totally out of it. The next day I tested again and I tested positive. And I have since then been in isolation in my new house. That's right. Two days after I moved into my new house, I've had to blockade myself in a a bedroom. It's it's actually an office and we haven't unpacked the boxes. So half the room is taken up with boxes. Another almost half is taken up by a mattress on the floor. And then the last half is my desk for work. So I've I've still been working, so I don't have to dock my PTO, but sleeping on the floor of the mattress surrounded by boxes that need to go up to the attic. So it's been a very bizarre first week in a new house. Wow. It sounds like something you're not going to forget. No. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm hoping in like a week or two, it'll just be a blip on the radar from a while ago. You know, I've tried to make the most of it and, and not dwell on it too much. But tomorrow morning, I can exit isolation. It's a good thing that germs are not transmissible over a uh, Ethernet connection because, Brian, I would not want to be infecting you right now. <laughs> yep, I was thinking about that myself, but it doesn't work that way. At least that's not what Fauci says. That's right, yeah. And uh, listeners, I've already coughed about four times in the recording. I'll probably edit most of the coughs out, but just imagine me like hacking up an eighth of a cup of phlegm every seven minutes and you got a good picture. Well, maybe not a good picture, but an accurate picture. (laughs) So anyways, the the relevant Tom Hanks movie, I I should have picked uh, Inferno, which is the the Dan Brown one, the third one about a plague that takes over the world. If I had known, I probably would have picked that one. Instead, I picked the money pit because the the more predictable of the life events was the moving. And the money pit is a Tom Hanks movie. That's right. It's Thanksgiving. On top of being COVID week and moving week, it's Thanksgiving. And in this movie, Tom Hanks and his girlfriend, played by Shelley Long of Cheers, buy a house. This movie came out in 1986, directed by Richard Benjamin. We're going to talk about this movie, and then we're going to get to our proper Thanksgiving discussion, including our top five Hanks movies countdown. Any preliminary thoughts before we start talking The Money Pit, Brian? Well, I'll just reiterate from last week that when you said you had a relevant film about moving into a big new house, I knew this was going to be the one. I've never seen it before. I just knew the title and that that's what it was about. So glad to check it off. It was poignant and thematic. That's right. Yeah. So The Money Pit. And you said you, you had not seen this one. That's correct. Yeah. When we get to our top five, we'll be talking about how much of Tom Hanks oeuvre we've consumed. Uh, But this was new to me. Gotcha. New to me as well. And uh, I knew it was one of his early movies. It actually was back during that uh, late 80s stretch before he really started doing more dramas and more ambitious stuff, let's say when he was basically only doing those comedies, his we'll talk about his career some, but basically uh, this came on the, the heels of, for example, uh, two years after both splash and bachelor party. Have you seen either of those ones, Brian? I haven't. Okay. So splash is 
a rom-com with a mermaid, a cryptid, and it follows our, our mermaid cryptid rules. When you're out of the water, you're not a mermaid. When you're in the water, you are a mermaid. And so there's shenanigans with investigators trying to splash people to figure out if they're mermaids, just like other ones we've seen. Okay, well, when we watched Luca, I asked if you'd seen another movie that worked by those rules. You told me no, Dan. You said you, you hadn't. Yeah, I saw Splash once a long time ago, and I guess it slipped my brain. I also watched Splash this week because I wanted to see what had led up to the money pit. And I was reminded of that, so I, I apologize. D- did you watch it on Disney Plus? Is it on Disney Plus? It is, but they covered up. Who's the actress? Daryl Hannah. Yeah. Yeah, they covered up like her butt crack. Oh. Like yeah, they like special editioned over it. But but you haven't seen it. You just saw like a, a clip of this or something. I I just no. Well I. <laughs> When there's censorship on streaming, I, I take that very seriously, whether it be a butt crack or, or something more significant. But just the thought that now that everything is digital, we're, we're like on the precipice of some very 1984 stuff, I feel. Yeah. Don't want those mermaid butt cracks to go away. Yeah, they can control what we see and don't see. Listeners and Brian, I, I warn you, I, I get a hunch I'm going to lose my voice before the end of this episode. So we'll see how we do. Oh, one other thought of context uh, is that I have not caught COVID, or at least not that I was aware of, uh, during the whole pandemic season. But you'll get to hear my fever dream story in a few weeks. I got something lined up on the calendar where I will talk about the sickest I've been. Okay, wow. Well, I'll, I'll wait to hear about that. I wish Destiny could have lined me up with you on that one, Brian. It's <laughs> okay. It'll work out well. Something for the listeners to look forward to. Yeah. So, yeah. And The Money Pit was two years before Big, which ended up being Tom Hanks's first Oscar nomination and his real breakthrough when he started doing much more serious stuff, or at least more ambitious stuff. Um kind of became a, a superstar at that point. But this were this was still ascendant Tom Hanks, let's say. And and the co-star is Shelley Long. So have you seen the show Cheers? No, I don't think I've watched a whole episode. I know it led to Frasier. Yeah, it was the first sitcom, or at least the first notable sitcom, to do a serialized will they won't they romance. That is now like the staple of every sitcom or at least the one that like really foregrounded it. So the the first season was like one long will they won't they between Sam and Diane. You'll often hear the will they won't they trope in sitcoms be called the Sam and Diane relationship or something like that. And the other one was um, Ted Danson, right? Yep. Ted Danson. So Shelley Long and Ted Danson. And they are both phenomenal in that show. Uh, Shelley Long plays basically the same character in this movie where she's like a academic, snooty, articulate, but also kind of doesn't always see things the right way type personality who's nonetheless a little bit charming. She left partway through Cheers and this was like right on the tail end of her Cheers run when she was trying to make a Hollywood career, which... According to Letterboxd, this is the most popular movie that she was ever in. So I don't think it ended up being a big Hollywood career. But we'll we'll talk about how much we liked her in this towards the end. 
and yeah, the the premise is going to be about buying a house here. So I'm ready to hop into the the story itself. I'm going to keep it short so we can talk a little bit more about Thanksgiving. But uh, Brian, any thoughts on the money pit before we get going? I'm ready to jump into the pit. So Hanks plays Walter Fielding, who is like a celebrity attorney. And his girlfriend is played by Shelley Long. Her name is Anna. She's a classical musician. And they live together in this really nice apartment in New York City. But it's owned by Anna's ex-husband, who is this real sleazy European classical music conductor named Max. And so he's been traveling. And so they've apparently still lived in this apartment. But now he is moving back. And so they need to move out of the apartment. And simultaneously, there will be a love triangle between Max, Walter and Anna here. But first, Walter and Anna need to go and find some some New York real estate. And so we get this gag about how hard it is to find places to live in New York. Still relevant. 28 years later, Brian. Yeah, real estate has not gotten easier to acquire. And I imagine especially in the big cities. Right. But a couple thoughts here. So Walter is a lawyer and he represents like a bunch of famous people, especially musicians. He's like uh, the representative of many big name bands that we see. Uh, Of course, all fictitious. They're like stand in examples of different kinds of bands but you might think well why is he cash strapped why does this lawyer not just a lawyer but a big name lawyer representing big name entertainment talent why does he have no money to buy a place to live and we get this prologue where his father has skipped out of the country because i guess he embezzled money from somewhere like a lot of money And so the reason that Hanks is cash poor at the start is he's had to pay off his father's debt. Yeah, that's right. I'm just going to tip my hand here a little bit. You don't need to tell me that why Tom Hanks buys a big broken house. Just get him in the big broken house. I had had no use for this, this whole story about like money embezzlement and his dad on the run. And it doesn't even get that much screen time. Just just get Tom Hanks in a big broken down house and let stuff fall on his head and him get stuck in things and paint pour on him. But that, that's all right. You're right. But I mean, it makes a point repeatedly of showing that he knows famous people and works with famous people. And it's like, why does he have no money? That's true. Why is he squatting in his girlfriend's husband's house? That's a good point. Uh, also, another thought about the European conductor is so just to paint a picture this guy has got long flowing blonde hair and like a german accent at one point he speaks french but i i really thought of it as like a german accent so i mean he's kind of like a a siegfried and roy type but there was a specific person i was thinking of trying to remember who he reminded me of uh so my dad is very into european band leaders that's like one of his favorite genres of music is he likes uh, Yanni and this German guy named James Last. And then today I was scratching my head thinking, who who is it that I'm trying to remember? And it was a guy named Andre Rue. 
And Andre Rue is a Dutch violinist and conductor who's also got this flowing hair, a Dutch accent, which is not too far from German. And I suspect this guy might be based on Andre Rue. If he's got a specific referent that the filmmakers had in mind, that's that's who I'm going to name drop. Okay, yeah, I can see that. So anyways, uh, for this reason, Walter and Anna decide they're going to get some property and they have this sleazy realtor friend named Jack. And he, he also happens to be your stock fat character. And he gets a bunch of fat jokes, although he's like trying to improve himself. And so there's all this stuff about him working out, but still being fat. And he, he knows this older woman whose husband was Hitler's pool man, which was kind of a dumb one-off joke that gets referenced again at the end of the movie that actually made me laugh as much as I didn't have much use for anything that wasn't like staircases falling on Tom Hanks in this movie. But I, I thought this was a funny little joke. But they describe it as a million-dollar house being sold for $200,000 which is pretty cheap. In, in today's dollars, I, I use an inflation calculator. That's $527,000. I mean, that's not a cheap house. I mean, in our area, Brian, that would be like a lower end single family house. But it's not like pennies, you know? Right, right. So, yeah, my parents' house cost 200000 when they bought it in 1991. And I think recently they've had it appraised at like 600,000. So, yeah, it's ballpark. It checks out with your math. Gotcha. So they they have to call in some favors to get the down payment, but they they do manage to get the $200,000. They move into this house formerly owned by Hitler's pool man and they move in. And here's where we hit the good stuff, Brian, the promise of the premise, which for me is easily the best part of the movie. And I think the thing that people remember this movie for, which is a big gnarly house falling apart in hilarious, goofy set pieces that just grow more elaborate by the scene. I was laughing my ass off during this part of the movie. Were you enjoying this? Were you with me that this was the best part? Yeah, I mean, this is delivering what it promised. Uh, it's very slapsticky. I found it strained credulity at times. Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, no, I completely agree. But, but Okay, because... So, when they're, like, being shown the house by the little old lady who's selling it at a bargain, the first thing she says is, Oh, watch that step as they're going up the big staircase. And so I was expecting, like, okay, maybe one of the first things that happens is the stair is going to break. And then at the climax of the movie, maybe the maybe the staircase falls down. And sure enough, like early on, the the stair breaks and Tom Hanks is is DIYing it, trying to fix it. But then not too far into the movie, we get this huge dramatic staircase collapse. Like it must have been expensive to do this whole series of Tom Hanks like clinging on as the staircase is falling apart like the T-Rex skeleton in Jurassic Park like rodeoing around on this staircase. But uh, then the rest of the movie, they're going up and down on this big ladder. And my thought was just, why are they doing anything up on that upper floor of the house? It's like, stay on the bottom floor until the stairs are fixed. There's no reason to go up there. You could, you know, 
put an air mattress on the floor. You're right. They're idiots. I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense. Some of the other things that happen here, they like they shoot their wad. It happens like all of this happens over like 20 minutes, maybe. So like the bed caves in. One I liked is the, he's ringing the doorbell to test the doorbell and the doorbell just explodes in sparks. Like, I don't think there's actually electricity sufficient in a doorbell to make that kind of explosion. So that one got a pretty big chuckle out of me. Okay, that bit I I found believable. Really? Because, yeah, one time I was unplugging a plug and the plate on the outlet was loose and it was like a piece of metal and it fell forward and contacted the prongs of the plug and it made like an electrical explosion just like that. I don't know if it's the same deal in a doorbell. I guess the doorbell is a little different from an outlet, but the, the way it sparked was very similar to this bit. Yeah, I actually, appropriately, I had one of my own minor electrical explosions in our new house before I came down with COVID. I was trying to install a smoke detector and just my I was pulling out the old one and my brain just didn't register that this was like wired into electricity. And I like pulled it out and like kind of moved the wires out of the way and the positive and negative hit each other and it, it blew the circuit and sparks came fell down into my hair and I smelled burning. I was like, hmm, that's probably not good. But I, I subsequently shut the electricity down and appropriately installed the smoke detector. Luckily, I, I was not the the conduit between those two uh, wires. Right. But yeah, some other good uh, slapsticky house falling apart stuff. Just ceiling tiles falling left and right. The bath faucet, it expels this just they do a great job making this brown goo look horrid that comes out of the, the bathtub. And it's this funny effect where like the, the whole bathtub shakes and then like the other part of the house stuff is shaking, too. I, I was laughing at that one. Yeah, there's a scene like this in the Goonies where the pipes are all shaking around. And I wonder if there's anything that actually causes that. I mean, maybe maybe there is. And I just haven't experienced it. Yeah. Um, but Shelley Long's reaction to the goop is very good. Yeah. Just the like existential dread. It's like eyes wide, right? As you mentioned, we get the stairs just totally collapsing. That one, my, that was one of my favorites. I don't know if that was my absolute favorite, but that one was up there for me. It was good. Like I said, I was surprised they used it so early because it goes on for a while. It's like 90 seconds. It may, I don't know. It may be even more than that. It's very good. <laughs> one that made me laugh just because it just didn't make any goddamn sense. It was like, how much can we pile on this stuff? Is he goes outside and he like, I don't even remember what he's trying to do, like prune a tree or something. And he leans on a tree and his tree tips over and it like causes a little bit of like a domino reaction. He goes inside and announces to Shelley Long, we have very weak trees. And I thought this was a hilarious uh, uh, bit here. <laughs> weak trees. What does that even mean? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe they haven't been watered or whatever. They The roots are dried up or something. Another bit that just goes on for what feels like minutes and minutes is... <laughs> I don't think this is how electricity works. But uh, in their kitchen, the electricity, like, something goes out. And, like, you see the wire inside the drywall... 
like very slowly burning out and like getting a hole in the wall. And Tom Hanks is just staring at it aghast. And it gradually sets off like appliance explosions. And the punchline of which is the turkey, which had been cooking for dinner, launches out of the oven and flies into their bedroom where Shelley Long notices that it's it's done cooking. So they start eating it in the bedroom. But this was another elaborate one that the slowness, the the just the drawn out nature of it made me laugh. Yeah, it burns all along the path of the circuits. Yeah. The bathtub goes through the ceiling. And this actually made me think of Breaking Bad, which I haven't seen all that much of. I've seen like three or four episodes. But in one of the first episodes, they're trying to decompose a body and they pour some chemical they're not supposed to into a bathtub. And it makes the like entire contents of the bathtub, including this decomposing corpse, fall through the, the ceiling. I was like, oh, it's like Breaking Bad, but without the, the murder. Yeah, I thought exactly the same thing because it's shot very similarly that it they're like standing, waiting underneath. And then the floor cracks open at the dramatic moment. And then the tub and all the rotten wood, no rotten body here falls through in slow motion yeah yeah it was pretty identical without the blood right i'll say yeah you didn't get very far into breaking bad and maybe that's a reason why uh that moment is not exactly representative of the show there's only like one other moment that's that gory and it doesn't come until season four gotcha yeah but great show big big fan of breaking bad listeners you know that final season of better call saul is about halfway through but yeah we were on the same page here oh that's good another one this bit where there's a hole breaks in the floor and he's uh, hanks is standing on like a rug or a carpet and he kind of like falls into it such that he's like plugging the hole held up by the carpet up to his like his shoulders so he can't actually get out he's stuck in it it actually gave me a little bit of like empathetic claustrophobia because he just couldn't move at all. But he's like, call, he's like missing people ringing the doorbell and dialing the phone and like calling for people and stuff. But it was a it was a little bit of a, a physical comedy here when he gets stuck in the uh, the the rug in the hole in the floor. The one that it that this made me think of was in the TV show Avatar: The Last Airbender. Something similar happens to Sokka. Uh, except it's like a rock he falls into instead of a hole in the floor. But he has the same type of stuff where he can't get out and he's trying to do stuff even though he can't really move his arms. What I was thinking of was Jumanji with Robin Williams. One of the things that the board game unleashes is it turns the floor into quicksand. And so he sinks through the wood and then they like move on to another turn and the the wood rehardens around him so like his legs are hanging down through the floor and his face is is stuck in the floor nice yeah i don't think i've seen jumanji oh man maybe we gotta watch the whole franchise because i haven't seen the new ones but the the trailers actually made them look kind of good so yeah maybe maybe i gotta watch the whole trilogy and they got solid reviews not like through the roof but pretty solid i think yeah i mean i, I like jack black i like the rock i they haven't done too much wrong in my eyes, so I, I think I would probably enjoy them. Let's see. Um, so, okay, so before we move on from these these set pieces of the house breaking, 
It was my favorite part of the movie. Did you have any single favorite effect, Brian? Anything that hopped out at you? I did like the stairs, and and probably the stuck in the floor was what I got the biggest kick out of. What about you? Uh, I think the stairs was was it for me. Although the the elaborate uh, electricity burning out was pretty good too. Uh, we get another really good one later on, but this was they kind of cut back on the the house falling apart for the rest of the movie, which. It got my hopes up that there was going to be a whole bunch of this stuff going on, but it, they it's like they burned through all their good material and then they kind of had to pad it out for the rest of the movie. Yeah, I agree. Um, Something that we skipped over. Uh, did this happen when the, the bathtub fell through the floor? I'm not really sure. Something falls and there's a big gaping hole and we get this long single shot of Tom Hanks looking down through the floor and just doing this maniacal laughter that goes on and on. I've never seen anything like this, this laugh that Tom Hanks does. Yes. Thank you. I had I had a note about it, but I forgot to mention it. It is after the bathtub collapses and they're just staring at it and it's a great laugh. That moment when he laughed like really set off my wife. She was just like having trouble breathing. She was laughing so hard <laughs> at Tom Hanks losing his mind. He alternates between an exhale laugh, which I would think of as a normal laugh, and an inhale laugh. So it's kind of like, ha, ha, ha! <laughs> it's very insane. Yeah, it's pretty great. So now that they got this busted house, they have to hire contractors. And the the guys that they hire, I guess their brothers, not very clear to me. These two sleazy, but mostly just weird guys who eventually bring on like this just circus of gimmicky weird dudes and gals to work on the house. And it's like a whole army of them to to repair their house. And the first thing they do is they like spend a whole day tearing up the house, like the yard even, like knocking windows out. And I mean, I know there's some extent of like, please excuse our dust as you start a project, but... It seemed like overkill in terms of the destructive preparatory work. What was your take on this, Brian? Right. Well, so these guys are the Shirk Brothers. They're the Shirks, which is a great name choice because, of course, if you shirk, that means you don't do any work. But I took the initial destruction to be like, I, I think they called them in the first place to be plumbers. Of course, they're doing all kinds of construction and, and handyman work. But um, I took the destruction to be them ripping out the pipes. That's that's my explanation for it. Uh, as with everything else in this movie, it's over the top. It's hyperbolic. It's not giving us a high degree of verisimilitude. But uh, if you wanted to explain it away, that was my attempt. Gotcha. Yeah. One gag with these contractors is they keep saying the work will take two weeks and then we get a smash cut for a four-month time jump. I was like, whoa, the jump had four months now. That, to me, was realistic, based on the year I've spent working in construction. It, it does seem like it goes on and on. But it was funny, because four months later, they're still saying it'll take two weeks. It's just like that's what they're saying over and over again. Shortly after this time jump, we get this like Rube Goldberg pratfall that ends up with Tom Hanks on the roof and then covered in paint and then falling down this scaffolding and like ending up in a fountain. 
just this very uh, goofy slapstick bit that that I enjoyed. It's very three stoogy. Yeah, it's like a lot of boards swinging around and. Or, or like a Looney Tunes, like people walking across beams as they're going by. Mm-hmm. One of the things that happens is there's like a table saw that goes flying through the air, and I foresaw that going a lot worse than it ends up going. It just like cuts a board, and then a wheelbarrow falls down and breaks something, but no one is dismembered. Yeah, it it doesn't go that far, but I, I shared your sense of tension that we were about to witness real violence so we get kind of the the third act relationship drama and it comes in kind of abruptly i mean i guess not that abruptly because we we have hints that max is still going after anna is it anna or anna i can't remember i think it's anna i think it is anna but apparently walter is out of town on his his lawyerly work at some point and anna is feeling lonely so after a rehearsal she gets drinks and dinner with her ex-husband. Already very weird. Well, here, let me explain my take on it, at least. Is Walter, Tom Hanks, basically pressures her to go ask the dude for money. Because, obviously, they spent all the money that they had to get this house, and now they've got to have all this work done, so they need money from somewhere else. Max is this rich well-connected conductor guy. And so Walter says, hey, go ask your ex-husband for a bunch of money. So what is about to happen, I pin at least some of the blame on Tom Hanks. I think he is the one pulling some of these strings and has in part himself to blame. That's what I think. Okay. I mean, that's not unreasonable. I did get a little bit of that, like, hmm, but it's just the tone is weird. Like, it's that's I don't know, kind of a dark thing. I, I agree. This whole this whole scenario is dark and strange. I didn't interpret it quite so darkly, which made Anna look even worse here. Right. So I'm, I'm I want to come a little bit to Anna's defense. OK, yeah. But regardless of of uh, why she has the mindset to do this. She she goes out on a, a night of dinner and drinks with Max. And then we once again smash cut to her waking up with a hangover, clothes strewn everywhere, where she basically immediately learns that she has slept with Max the night before when she got drunk. And all of a sudden there's like this pall on the film. It's like this relationship drama got very dark all of a sudden. When five minutes earlier, Tom Hanks had a paint can stuck on his head, you know, mm -hmm. so it it sucked the 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 fun out of the sales for me a little bit, right? And and then of course when Walter gets home, they have a confrontation about it, and Anna finally admits it, and then they get in a fight, and he's mad because, of course, because she cheated, and she's mad because he won't forgive her. It makes a little more sense if you use your angle on it. Well, also, he keeps saying, come on, tell me the truth. I won't be mad. I won't be mad. And then after like days of this, she tells him and he's mad, which I mean, is natural, I suppose. But he also said he wasn't going to be. So, yeah, I suppose. But like that doesn't shift the 
balance in the relationship towards equal, I would say. Like, those are to be not equal sins. Okay, also, I mean, yeah, I, I just want to say again that, to me, my reading, Tom Hanks was like, hey, you know your ex-husband who's made it clear repeatedly he's still in love with you? We need, like, $100,000, so you need to go and do what you gotta do to make that happen. That's that's how I saw it. Okay, if you saw it that way, then this whole plot feels a little bit more balanced and maybe less strange. Probably still a strong tone shift, if nothing else, here. Right, right. But after this confrontation... They they are not able to resolve. They decide that they need to break up, and but they can't break up until the house is done because they both own the house, and they're not going to sell it until the renovation is done. So they're going to wait for the renovation to finish, then sell it, split the money, go their separate ways. Sometime hereafter, but before the renovations are done, Max comes up and confesses to Anna that they didn't actually sleep together, that she just passed out. But then she, like, refuses to bring this up to Walter because he's still being stubborn about everything, which I guess is like a, our pathway to them feeling better about the whole thing at the end. Because when the house is done, it is like this beautiful HGTV mansion, and they're they're about to part ways and sell it. When Walter breaks down and says he doesn't want her to leave, he he doesn't care what she did, that he wants to stay together. And then she admits that she didn't sleep with Max and wants to stay with him. And they reunite and live in their million dollar mansion, which I looked it up. The address that this was filmed at recently sold for like two point nine million dollars. So it would be a nice property to have right now, considering they bought it with basically having no money in the pocket. Right. It turns out nice. I mean, new stairs and everything. And that is The Money Pit from from 1986. Brian, Mm -hmm. would you or would you not believe me if I told you that this film shared a cinematographer with The Godfather, (laughs) arguably the, the greatest cinematographer of all time, Gordon Willis? It's bizarre, but maybe... That's an argument in favor that the cinematographer doesn't have as much of an influence on the flavor of a film as you might think. Yeah, there were a couple times I was like, okay, this is kind of a nice shot. And like, I fleetingly thought that a couple of times. But I would say if you look at all of the movies he shot and you look at like the top 20 most watched, this is like number 10 of his most watched movies and I have seen all but one of the ones above it and those are all like historically gorgeous films like Manhattan by Woody Allen and The Godfather and all the president's men and stuff and then and then there's the money pit so there you go that's really interesting yeah there are several people in this movie that I thought I recognized from other movies and then I didn't (laughs) like I looked them up and they're just they were in this movie and pretty much nothing else. There's like a child star who lends Tom Hanks a bunch of the money he needs, who I thought was Ralph Macchio, but isn't. Oh, that would have been so good. He's just some random child actor with an 
exaggerated Italian accent. Bump it up then is a good point if that's Ralph Macchio. Uh, too bad. So, so Brian, let's talk some good things and, and some not so good things. What what were some some good things for you here? Well, I liked the two main actors. Obviously, we've devoted a whole holiday to him. I like Tom Hanks. And this is a, a, a reasonably good performance from him. I like his crazy laugh. And just seeing him be long-suffering. And uh, I hadn't seen Shelley Long in much, but I liked her reactions to things. Especially the, the goopy tub. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the leads are, are well-suited for the, the film. I mean, I don't know... I don't really have a quote unquote favorite actor, but Tom Hanks would be a candidate, especially on certain metrics. Like which movie star would you most trust to give a good performance and carry a movie? Like if Tom Hanks is in it, I know he's going to be good in it and he's going to like carry the movie through from start to finish. I don't know if there are any other actors who do that quite to the level that he does. And certainly None that I can think of for both that that span comedy and drama the way that he does. Great point. And he's very, very funny here. Yeah, I, I think it makes sense that in recent decades, Tom Hanks has hooked up with Steven Spielberg. Like if you, you're going to go with two reliable movie names of you hear it and you think, oh, they're probably going to make a pretty good movie that they would gravitate into each other's orbit feels right to me. For sure. Yeah. And I know I already emphasized it. That phase where that we get the slapstick of the house falling apart really did it for me. So I was digging that. That was a little bit of a mixed bag for me. Just, I mean, it just, I really didn't think if an average person were in this situation that they would keep going up the ladder to that second floor, which is where most of these crazy things are going on, like the sinking through the floor. <laughs> that that all happens long after the stairs have collapsed. It's like, just don't go up there. I, I wouldn't. I, I would wait till the stairs were fixed, and I would live on the first floor for a while. That's all I'm saying. But you're right, it would, it would rob us of many of our gags, so we just gotta go along. Any other good things you wanted to shout out, Brian? Uh, Joe Montagna plays one of the Shirk brothers. Who's he? He hosts the 4th of July. Well, I don't know if he does the 4th of July or the Memorial Day concert on PBS every year. Mm. But he's like, from year to year, he's always the host. So it's like, oh, it's that guy. Nice. Joe Montagna also plays Fat Tony on The Simpsons. Oh, amazing. That's a more impressive role for me. Yeah, but anyways, um, so let's talk some not so good things. I would have cut out a lot of the stuff that wasn't paint cans and bathtubs and staircases falling on Tom Hanks and Shelley Long. It takes us 20 minutes to get there. And then the, the whole third act has that whole infidelity subplot. So, yeah, in addition to that stuff in the third act, the time jumps kind of threw me out of it a little bit. It's like we we see the first day of this house falling apart. And then all of a sudden, it's four months later. It just kind of threw me out of it. To me, this movie was absolutely begging for a montage. And we didn't really get a montage. Like, I can't think of a movie better suited to one. You got it like, oh, he's fixing the window. But oops, he plastered his hand instead of the door. And then just stuff like that until it gets better and better. But instead, we get a time jump smash cut. I thought that was disappointing. 
yeah, a lot of these gags could have been strung together into a montage, but they they milked them. Yeah. And I did put to, together a little rewrite, which is basically just uh, pretty much what I've already said. I, I have I don't need the jealous ex-husband. Let's just let the relationship drama be the tension of the house itself. So cut that out and then have more of like uh, them getting mad at each other because somebody, oh, Shelly Long pulled the doorknob too hard. And, and now Tom Hanks is mad at her because she wasn't supposed to pull that doorknob or something like that. And then it comes to a boil. You could still have that that whole third act tension without making it bringing in the whole X and the infidelity stuff that that, that was a downer for me. Right. I, I agree. And like I said, more montages and spread out that uh, that house destruction some. So I feel like you could do a revision of the script and get pretty close to there pretty quickly. So that's my proposed rewrite of the money pit. Any other not so good things you wanted to, to bring up here, Brian? Well, to tack on one more good thing, I kind of liked the wedding at the end when all of the various weird characters show up. If your movie is going to have a bunch of one-off odd characters, I like the payoff if they all come back at the end. That's a good call. I forgot to mention that, but I did like that. That was a good little denouement where we had all of the weirdos who had worked on the house and stuff. And like all his celebrity clients and just everybody we've seen for a, a split moment is there. It's like the finale of Seinfeld. Uh, and then a, a double stinger, we get Hitler's pool boy and his his wife who sold her the house. I don't know where they are, somewhere somewhere else. Yeah, down in South America, as as with many ex-Nazis. So, of course, they've got a house down in South America they're trying to sell to. And uh, who should end up there but the dad who has fled from America. That's right, yeah. So that's the money pit, Brian. Are you ready to, to jump to our signature section? Yes. Our signature section is, is it good? This is where we, of course, answer our key question. And we rate our films on an eight-point scale, ranging from one out of eight, which we've termed very not good, up to eight out of eight, our masterpiece rating called Tour de Good. And so, Dan, I guess I am our guest this week, which means I get to pass first judgment. So this one for me gets a four out of eight, a good-ish. I think it delivered admirably on the premise. I was expecting a film about pratfalls of getting a big house for a bargain and then finding out that you you end up paying for it either way. You got to do all that work on the back end if you got it for cheap at the front. And sure enough, that's what we get. But I, I found myself time and again just thinking this... Sure, this house would really be expensive, but... I don't think there would be this many pratfalls. I, I think you would have the people come in and deal with it and, and sure enough have to spend a lot of money. But like, would the wires be burning along inch by inch for so long? I don't know. I don't know if that's realistic. But of course, a comedy doesn't have to be realistic. But I, I, I found my suspension of disbelief just a, li a little difficult at times. But, uh, of course, we do have some charismatic leads. I was laughing. So, four out of eight. That's, that's where I'm at. What about you, Dan? 
Nice. Um, if you were to take the 20 best minutes of this movie, I would probably be in the realm of like a five. And even if you were to just like make the the last act not make me feel so sad about their relationship and like their how it kind of had fallen apart with their cheating and all that, that was that was ruining my vibe. I would have given it a four. Instead, I'm going to land at a, a high three, which is not not good. It's not not good, but it doesn't quite approach good as an overall package for me. Good in moments like the leads overall just wasn't doing quite enough for me. But I think we're in the similar ballpark because I'm at kind of a high three. Well, I'm glad that we came together, you know. From the way that you were describing some things, I thought you were going to be a lot higher than me, actually. Uh, I was afraid I was going to be the downer. Yeah, it's a mixed bag here in the money pit. I, I probably misled, not on purpose there, but uh, like I said, the, the best 20 minutes were were uh, cracking me up here. But I feel like it, it lost its focus. But yeah, I, I agree. As often, we were right around the, the same same grade here. And that's the money pit. And now we get to the main event of the night, Brian. And that is Thanksgiving. It's it's here. America's favorite holiday. That's right. You know, you got Thanksgiving in November. You got Thanksgiving in the middle of May. Perhaps we could have planned and, and had it be close to Thanksgiving. The the other Thanksgiving suffix holiday. But uh, that's OK. Like you said, we can do it in May. They're kind of a. Uh, Opposite sides of the calendar, you know? And of course, there's plenty of Hanks films, as we'll see. So not beyond the realm of possibility that we could do this again sometime. Sure, yeah. So so Tom Hanks movies. So uh, I spent a lot of time staring at Tom Hanks's filmography over the past however long it's been since we recorded. What do we say? Two weeks? Almost? Something like that. Almost. So, Brian... I looked at Tom Hanks's movies. I counted 54 narrative feature length films, non-documentary, in which he has a non-cameo role. And in almost all of these, he's one of the top two lead actors with like two exceptions, maybe. I also ask you to just for a bit toss out the four Toy Stories because we already talked Pixar and I thought it would be a little more interesting, especially if we're doing top five. You know, we love the Toy Stories. It might have drowned out our top fives a little bit. Let's just toss them, set them to the side. We we can include them in our holistic view of Tom Hanks, but but not our, our top five countdown. Right. I, I think you set some good ground rules. So of those movies that you tallied up, Dan, round about 50, how many would you say you've seen? Yeah, so out of 54 minus... The four. So out of 50, I have seen 50. I have seen every single Tom Hanks movie as of today. Oh, my God. All right. I am questioning whether you were even really sick or or if you were, you you put it to good use. Um, Because the last time we talked, you said you'd seen about 30. So, wow. All right. Well, I was sick and I was stuck in a room. What was I going to do except play movies all day? Okay, well, that's on brand for you. So uh, I'll say that uh, when we last talked, I I had seen about 22 
of these films. Actually, I think I gave myself a little extra credit. I think I counted cars in which he appears for like <laughs> 10 seconds as the voice of a woody car. So so maybe 20. Wow. You've seen every one? Yep. I had to shirk my work off to use our one of our words of the day. I had to shirk my work off a little bit today to uh, pay attention to the last couple. But I, I did manage to, uh, I've now seen them all. Yeah, yeah when, you, when you made a reference to Da Vinci Code 3, I was wondering, because who has seen Da Vinci Code 3 other than <laughs> someone deliberately trying to watch every Tom Hanks film? Yeah, yeah, so earliest movie, depends on whether you count TV movies. Okay, did you watch Mazes and Monsters? I did watch Mazes and Monsters. Oh, Oh man, that was going to be my my clutch pull of of talking about mazes and monsters, but <laughs> that of course being the anti D and D scare film, which was one of Tom Hanks's earliest. Yeah, so that one came out in uh, nineteen eighty two. Did you watch that one? Did you track it down? I actually haven't watched it. I just know a, a little about it. Okay, it it's pretty bad. In fact, it's quite bad. So I ranked all of Tom Hanks's movies. And I, I have that one pretty close to the bottom. I have it at number 52 of 54. And the only way it kind of gets above the bottom is it has some so bad it's good charm where Tom Hanks is like having visions of like minotaurs telling him to jump off of the World Trade Centers and just this really bizarre stuff going on. It's it's not very good. I would give that one a two out of eight. But yeah. You're right. It's it's Dungeons and Dragons, but it's mazes and monsters. And he it like kind of treads the line of whether it's actually satanic possession or whether he was like already having psychosis when it started. And so it is anti D&D. Oh, it's also hilarious because it's like, have you ever played D&D, Brian? Yes, I have. So D&D can look differently depending on who you're playing with. But what D&D mostly is, is like geeky people making up stories and rolling dice and trying to figure out what spells they can cast. And it's like it's not what it appears to be in this movie, which is like satanic seance where they're talking about like the great curse and it's like lit by candlelight and it's like they're doing some ritual and stuff. So it's it's pretty comical about how little it actually understands Dungeons and Dragons. Like, actually, this makes Dungeons and Dragons look cooler than it is <laughs> in some sort of cult or something. So so before we dive into our top five overarching thoughts on Tom Hanks, you called him America's dad. Is, did you make up that title? I feel like I've heard that before. No, I've heard it. I, I heard it especially when he got cast as Walt Disney in Saving Mr. Banks. I, I heard that appellation being tossed around have you seen that one by the way i i did see that one yes i thought you would like that one so i'm glad that you've seen it yeah it's it's pretty good as far as uh, you know i like biopics so right that's one of the reasons i thought it's also got some good disney illusions in there and and yeah some deep lore when it comes to disney you know not a lot of films where you see dom de Grotti being portrayed disney screenwriter dom de Grotti. And the what are the name of the songwriters? The Sherman Brothers. Yeah. So, yeah, of course, I went and saw that one in theaters. So what are some overall observations you have on, on Tom Hanks and his his career as we celebrate Thanksgiving here? So he's got a pretty wholesome image, I would say. Like, he's not an edgy guy. He, he's, he's pretty clean 
Like, if he were to run for president, that would not surprise me, maybe. I don't, I don't know. That's Nowadays, that's so tarnished. Sure. But he just seems like an upstanding dude to me. Yeah. Um, what would you say, Dan? I think that's apt. Um, I think he is very charming. I think for like the first half of his career so far, you would have called him boyish and where he's got like a kind of energy and cheerfulness about him. It's not like a manic energy, but it's like a, a playfulness almost to particularly roles like big and bachelor party and Turner and Hooch. He's got like a, a kind of a happy go lucky air to him. Yeah, he's he's like an everyman. He's kind of like a almost like a precursor to Office Jim in the in the young Tom Hanks roles. He's not Jim Carrey, right? And w- what really surprised me is as I was watching, I watched in mostly chronological order. He really has challenged himself with a wide variety of movies and roles. He's been in a lot of different types of stuff, like. For some reason, I had in my mind that he's been in like a hundred generic rom-coms, but he's really only been in like four and all of them were before the year 2000. So it's not like he's just kind of coasted. He's he's constantly done different stuff. I would say maybe the last couple of years, he's kind of eased into like Spielberg style thrillers. I would say like Spielberg and Paul Greengrass thrillers more than anything else, but he still does a why he played Mr. Rogers just a couple of years ago. And as much as I think of him as just like, you know, what do you call an actor who always plays themselves? You know, like Samuel L. Jackson or something. Is that a character actor or is that the opposite? I think it's the opposite. Yeah, I I don't know. I you hear typecasting. So maybe if they've got a type, but uh, yeah, if they just kind of always play themselves, that's sort of a different thing. I don't know. And he's got some of that, but. That's been less of his modus operandi than I would have guessed if you had said, if you're going to watch 54 Tom Hanks movies, how much variety would you expect to see? And I would have said less than I ended up seeing. Wow. I'm still staggered by your achievement. You really came prepared for Thanksgiving. I celebrate. That's that's right. You're a true pilgrim on Thanksgiving. My other Tom Hanks factoid that I wanted to bring to our Thanksgiving table is... uh, you know, he's involved in production some, too. He is a fairly prolific producer, especially of history-related content. So some of the Tom Hanks movies that I have seen, he was in Saving Private Ryan. Of course, I think that was his first collaboration with Spielberg. Uh, and before that, he was in Apollo 13. And after he was in those films, he produced... TV series about the historical events that tied into them. So after Apollo 13, he produced and helped sponsor this series. I think it was on HBO called From the Earth to the Moon about the Apollo program. So up to Apollo 17, which when do you ever hear about Apollo 17? I think that was the first time I'd ever heard about it. Like, you hear about Apollo 11 because it was the first one, and you hear about Apollo 13 because it went wrong. But this talks about all the Apollo missions. Okay. And then after Saving Private Ryan, 
he produced the HBO series Band of Brothers, which was very well regarded and was a, about World War II. The Ken Burns World War II series, he was one of the narrators of. And uh, I listened to a history podcast called Hardcore History, and Tom Hanks was a guest on that recently because he was in some Apple Plus exclusive film about U-boats, I think. Something to do with submarines during World War II. Yeah, Greyhound. Did you watch that one too? Watched that one today. I gave that one a, a five, a, a good on the is a good scale. And so he was on the show to promote what he knew and was involved with about World War II submarine warfare tying into that film. Yeah, if you pull up his list on Wikipedia, it's got a long list of movies he starred in, but also movies that he produced on the same list. And it really is a lot of films. And he has the Playtone Company and, and particularly the past 10 years, a lot of the movies that he's appeared in have been Playtone productions. And uh, I noticed that because I know that from that thing you do, the fake record label from that movie. But we saw it in front of what movie was it? The oh, City of Ember had had that that production label at the start of it. So that's one he produced, I think. I'll be curious, Brian, how much overlap we have, because there's only a few Tom Hanks movies that we've directly talked about. You've referenced some on your 100 film favorites. And the one that we have talked about is Forrest Gump, which we're not exactly on the same page on. So I don't it'll be interesting to see like how we uh, rank the Hanks, rank the Hanks. Yeah, so I, I think I said I'm, I'm at about 20 of the of the 50. And I'll say the era when I'm really squared away is like 90s to early 2000s. Like starting in 93, you got Philadelphia up to about 2004 with the terminal and the Polar Express. I've seen like everything in that stretch but outside of it much more spotty nice hanks is also been a heavily nominated actor he has five academy award nominations and i think two wins and i think they were consecutive wins i think he won for philadelphia and forrest gump yeah i think he might be the only person to have two consecutive best actor wins so that's quite the achievement but yeah, I mean, are you, are you ready to uh, hop into top fives? Any other Hank's thoughts before we, we do it? No, we'll, we'll be sharing some Hank's thoughts as we talk about these films. So I do have my, my list ready. Uh, obviously not comprehensive, listeners. So uh, bear <laughs> with my selections. But I, I do have the, the five I've liked the most of what I've seen. I'm going to say it's a coin flip that we have zero of the same top five, Brian. So I think with Toy Stories, we would, but I will be very interested to see where it goes. I predict two of the same picks. Two of the five will match. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. Who should go first? I, I can go first, or do you want to go first? Uh, what would you like? Why don't you go first this time? I went second the last couple top fives. Uh, so you said you ranked all of them. Can, can we pull like we did with the songs and say what our six would be? Yes, sure. So at number six, I have Catch Me If You Can. This is quite a good movie, but uh, it falls just outside of my pantheon because Leo is really the star. Love Leonardo DiCaprio's performance in this movie. It's where he plays Frank Abagnale, who was a notorious imposter. 
he just really seemed to enjoy pretending to be what he wasn't. And he, like, successfully conned people into believing he was a pilot and a doctor and all these different things. And throughout the film, Hanks is the FBI agent tracking him down. And ultimately, he gets caught, but he becomes like a CI. He actually trains FBI agents to pick up on forgeries and catch the perpetrators of fraud. Nice, yeah. Isn't Leo so good in that movie? He's really good, and Tom Hanks almost feels like an afterthought. I mean, he's okay, Yeah, but it's really, it's really Leo's time to shine. Yeah, I mean, I think Hanks is terrific as well, but I think, like, I know that Leo's become since then like one of the quote-unquote great actors and he maybe wasn't quite there in 2002 when that movie came out that is for me up there with his best performances that i've seen he's so i rewatched that in the past couple weeks and in prep for this episode and man he is terrific in that Mm -hmm. what what would you have at number six yeah I, I actually would prefer to talk about my number six and number five in conjunction okay so why don't you hit us with your number five okay so uh, at number five, I have The Green Mile. Now, um, in the 90s, Frank Darabont of The Walking Dead made two adaptations of Stephen King's story set in prisons. Obviously, better known is The Shawshank Redemption, which is quite a good film. Doesn't have Tom Hanks, but The Green Mile does. I don't know. I like the, the mix at play here where it's uh, like a period prison drama about death row so you got a lot of like darkness there but then there's also like a magic element there's some supernatural stuff not quite horror like you might expect from stephen king but there's like powers at work and i don't know an interesting mix there's like longevity stuff unnaturally extended lifespans i like this one i'd say check it out if you haven't seen it it's kind of long it's like a three-hour movie uh, it's kind of polarizing. I've talked to people who who don't like this one. I I found it enjoyable. Yeah, so this is my most overrated, or my take on the most overrated Tom Hanks movies. I do know a lot of people whose opinions I respect who really like this movie, and I, I'm not bashing you for having it here. But for me, like, so I know some people who don't like Shawshank, and when I ask them why, and they're like, oh, it's so cheesy, and it's all to prison, and, like, prisoners wouldn't act that way, and... Oh, it like tries to be dramatic, but it's just silly. I'm like, no, it's great. What are you talking about? I feel about the Green Mile the way that those people feel about Shawshank Redemption. I, for whatever reason, this one just rubs me the wrong way almost all the way through. I do think Hanks is pretty good in it. I mean, you know, he gets to play like the noble prison guard and Michael Clark Duncan as the I did not invent this phrase. This is like a trope. The magic Negro character who is the one who has all the magic in that movie. Um, and he he's absolutely terrific, but the character is written just to me isn't a real character. And he wants us to be so sad about everything going on with him. And I just couldn't buy him as a real character. Although I think Duncan, he's just something else in that. He's so invested in that. And he's, I mean, he's like a specimen. He's really big. They And they like exaggerated in the way they shoot it but it's i mean he's convincing that he's like superhumanly large yeah and i think he got nominated for that as best supporting actor and as much as i don't i'm not fond of that movie i think he deserved that nomination but Mm -hmm. i have this movie at number i have this number 
40 out of 54, including the Toy Stories. Okay. The highest of the not not goods that I, I have of Tom Hanks's movies. Where is Toy Story 4 on your list? Toy Story 4 I have at number 22. Okay. The weakest of the very goods, just above a good. I need to rewatch it to see how I really feel. Every t- I've watched it twice and both times. As soon as it was done, I was like, I, I haven't decided my final opinion on this movie yet. I need to watch it one more time. Mm-hmm. So that's it's kind of hovering at the five, six line. right yeah, now. I almost want to talk Toy Story for like des- dedicated at some point. We'll we'll see. As like an episode. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. We can find a place for it. So six and five. What do you got? Yeah. So the reason I want to talk about my number six and number five is because for me, they are have similar strengths and weaknesses. Both of them are astonishing technical achievements. And both of them are very moving at different places. And then both of them also like puff their chests out with patriotism and preachiness a little bit too much. And I waffled like I have them next to each other in the ranking and I waffled on which one I was going to put at five and which one I was going to put at six. Uh, I ended up putting at six the movie that I think is overall better directed and more technically impressive, but has much worse tonal whiplash. And that is Saving Private Ryan from 1998. I have it number six. I think it's a terrific movie. I have it at a uh, exceptionally good. But this time when I watched it, it really, really bothered me how like it wants to be a Spielberg movie where we're proud of our soldiers. But then it also spends the whole movie telling us that everything they're doing is pointless and war is just shit. And like it ends with a man weeping at a military graveyard about all his fallen brothers and the toll of war and how we should be grateful for our freedom. And it just kind of gave me a headache, like thinking about what this movie's philosophy on war was. Again, I still did give it a exceptionally good because I think this movie is awesome. Great story. Those first 20 minutes are, oh my God, uh, D-Day. I think every battle scene made since 1998 has been indebted to that, or at least reacting to that just hyper real, crazy segment of depiction of D-Day. And also noteworthy about Saving Private Ryan Gave us the title for our blog, Brian, our old blog. Yeah, so, well, I got to hear what your number five is. Maybe now's the time to say my next one coming up, my number four. Okay. Saving Private Ryan. Gotcha. Uh, And I'll I'll express some thoughts in a second, but why'd you call it Earn This? What does that mean? I I know that the line at the end when Tom Hanks, I think, is dying, right? And Mm -hmm. he's, so they've, they've fought their way to the castle at the center of the Goblin City. No, they they worked their way like behind enemy lines because the the premise is they got to go and they got to save Matt Damon. Yeah. Uh because he's the last brother. It's like they military has some policy apparently that if you got a bunch of brothers, a bunch of sons in the military and multiple of them die, the survivors get pulled out so that you don't lose all your sons. And so they got to go track down this last brother, Matt Damon, and and bring him home. And they do, they they get to him and they save him, but they've lost a lot of their own. Tom Hanks is sitting there dying and he says, earn this. So, and your question is, is it what does this line mean or why did we pick it for the blog? Well, uh, so why did you pick it? Why is it the name of an entertainment blog? So Tom Hanks says it because he's like, okay, 
your your life has been bargained for and won at a steep cost so make it worthwhile but why why is that the name of the blog so here's the origin story of earn this as the name of our blog earnthis.net so uh, my friend grant is the co-founder grant and i founded it and i did not know what to call the blog and we had the idea let's make it a reference to something that we both like and so back in 20, 2009, when we started it, Facebook had a feature where you could list your favorite movies. It was like it showed up on your front page of your profile, favorite movies, and you could list as many as you wanted. And I pulled up my Facebook profile and I said, all right, choose one from this list that you also like and we'll make the title off of a reference to that movie. And I had like 30 movies listed there. And one of them was Saving Private Ryan. And he said, Saving Private Ryan. And I was like, all right, what are some iconic things from Saving Private Ryan? And we thought of Earn This. And that was literally all the thought we put into it when we picked it. And then I ended up writing a blurb about how like that this was like, uh, what's it called? Reverse something, uh, reverse engineered explanation. Mm -hmm. Like we didn't use this explanation to come up with the title. But once we had the title, we kind of came up with this justification where basically uh, we wanted to be very thoughtful. We, we wanted to not just passively enjoy the things that we consumed, but really earn our love for them by being thoughtful about them. So that was like the thematic thing that we came up with. Now, I will say, I think this is a stupid title for a blog now. I have no attachment to it. It was we came up with it in less than 20 minutes. So I'm not going to sit here and say it was a good title. But that's the, the origin story. Okay. I I feel a little cheated having wondered for years, but it's okay. <laughs> now I know. Did you think there was more of a, a a myth to it? I thought it must really mean something to you to make that the name of the blog. But okay, no, I'll uh, I'll process it. It's all right. Okay, yeah. And to be fair, I did not know EarnThis.net would stick around for. I mean, I don't know if I've published anything since 2018. But even if you do 2018, that was. Uh, Nine years. Over nine years of writing, yeah. So, but yeah, uh, there you go. Underwhelming origin story for EarnThis.net. Okay, but what's your number five? So my number five is Apollo 13 from 1995, which I liked watching this, this recently more than I remembered liking. It's almost two and a half hours, but it really cooks. It's the story, of course, of the uh, space mission, Apollo 13, which Tom Hanks is the captain of. And he's excited to land on the moon. He plays real historical figure, Jim Lovell. He uh, launches his way towards the moon. But shortly after liftoff, there is a explosion outside the ship. And not only does it mean they, they can't land on the moon, but that to make it back to Earth is going to require lots of ingenuity and creativity and just the right amount of luck and will they get back in time and everyone survive? And the answer of course is yes, they will not to spoil this historical well-known tale directed by Ron Howard, who I can be a little mixed on. I think his voice is just really bland. Um, like I complained about Steven Spielberg's voice being a little schmaltzy for saving private Ryan, but compare that to Ron Howard, who, I just don't feel like he ever feels emotionally invested in the stuff that he's doing. Sure. He like comes in as a craftsman 
which is a, an approach, you know, but can it detach me a little bit. But I actually think it works really well here because you just get a very straightforward presentation of this saga where every beat is well engineered and it, it gets you there. It's paced brilliantly for a two and a half hour movie. Great performances. The CGI is kind of shitty, but you still get like really cool space shots and, you know, uh, cool stuff inside the shuttle and all that. And the end does do a little bit of like chest thumping, flag waving that detracts me a little bit because it goes and it makes this story about how the U.S. is great and we should be going to space again, which I agree with both of those things. But like I was more happy about Apollo 13, just being Apollo 13, didn't need to have an explicit title card essentially saying, I believe that we should be back in going into space, signed Ron Howard. So I guess he does have an opinion and a voice. I guess I'm contradicting myself here. <laughs> but there are there are other ways to express your voice through a film than having a explicit title card. Exactly, yeah. Right. Uh, so I rewatched this one not too long ago and enjoyed it. Uh-huh. It would probably be like maybe at my number eight or something. Ron Howard, of course, another frequent Tom Hanks collaborator, I believe, didn't Ron Howard make the Da Vinci Code movies? At least the first one, I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah, he did. And you want to know something even crazier, Connection? One of the first, not the first, but one of the first movies he ever directed was Splash, Tom Hanks's first theatrical movie. Oh, there you go. So they've been collaborating from the start. That's kind of cool. I like that. Some other things, other thoughts about Apollo 13 is I was really struck when I watched it that this guy, Jim Lovell, was on Apollo 11, which orbited the moon but didn't land. And then in 13, that's going to be his his time to land on the moon. But then he ends up having to orbit the moon again. So, so he can see the moon outside his window. It's like cosmic blue balls. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. If we were doing an Apollo 13 episode, that would be a great time. It's like he's almost there, but he can't seal the deal. Yeah. And the movie gets just the right amount of emotional impact out of that. Like we know we're here to see the spaceship. But we also want some human pull, and there's just a little bit of it there. So that's my number five, Brian. And we talked about your number four. Is there anything else you wanted to add about Saving Private Ryan? Well, you pretty much nailed it, is that you've got, like, the best realization of the D-Day landing that there could possibly be, and then the rest of the movie, they're kind of treading water. Right. I mean, there is other stuff. There's, like, the iconic meme of him shooting at the tank. Uh, like, what is his little gun going to do against the tank? Mm-hmm. And uh, then another meme shot at the end of Matt Damon standing at the grave and like the, the crushing dissolve of the years of him becoming the old man standing there. Right. But yeah, it's memorable. It's if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's an important moment in film history. And it heralded a lot of Spielberg and Hank's collaborations to come. Agreed. What's your number four? My number four is your number six. Catch me if you can. I love this movie. Great score by John Williams. Very spy, uh, sneaky, but like less romantic than I think of Williams scores being. Uh, love his work there. Love this movie. Um, you're right that it's not in Hank's most iconic performances or like the movies where he's most central because it's all about Leo. But if you were just going by quality of movies where Hanks is a co-star or star, I have Catch Me If You Can as, as number four. 
sneaky Christmas movie pick, Brian. They they talk every year on Christmas. Oh, the hunter and the and the hunted. Yeah, Hanks and Leo. Yeah, interesting. I didn't remember that. It's been a while since I watched this one. Got a lot of uh, pretty women in this one. Yeah, I was I was thinking. You know what I thought about was the '60s stewardesses. Yeah, it's like that's what's cemented in my mind. Right. It, it's got some. It got a lot of iconic period stuff in it too, like really fun outfits and uh, architecture and and little stuff you date to the late mid-century. Good stuff. So that's my number four. One more thought is that Frank Abagnale has a really good TED Talk. Oh, does he? Yeah, the actual dude who did these things. Apparently there was a book debunking a lot of the movie, and I closed the Wikipedia page when I scrolled to see that that was there because I don't (laughs) want to know. I want it to be real. But even if it's not real, I don't care because it's a great story. My, my thought hearing him talk for like 20 minutes or however long the TED Talk goes is that this is a genius. Really? Like a really, really smart dude. Like he could play three-dimensional chess. Like I was just barely keeping – I could just barely keep up with the things he was saying. He seemed really, really intelligent. And the movie does a great job of of showing how smart he is and like how he is like a kid and – He's got inexperience and uh, emotional issues, but he's also like a special kind of genius. And of course, it's a, a Spielberg movie. So there's going to be at least a little bit of daddy issues going on. And in fact, that's a major theme of Catch Me If You Can. But anyways, uh, I, I love that one. I give that one a high, exceptionally good high seven. So Brian, what's your number three? At number three, I have one of his earliest ones, Big that's because I think he's really well cast young Tom Hanks as a kid put into an adult's body. He has that boyish charm that you talked about. Uh, we get some really memorable scenes in this one, them dancing on the big piano at FAO Schwartz. And of course the Zoltar machine. I love the Zoltar machine. I knew you would. Yeah. Just this scary menacing coin op that comes to life and curses him grants his wish and of course gives you the timeless be careful what you wish for moral right what's your number three so i just want to say i have big at number 14 i have it as a high very good i also really like this one and you know if i hadn't crammed it might have been closer to my my top five but um i agree with that i think it's one of his best performances full stop i ranked his top five performances and I have it as uh, his second best performance overall. I think this is a terrific performance. The way that he seems to be a kid in a man's body, just mind-blowing how, how much I watched him act and thought that he was a 10-year-old or whatever it is. Yeah, he's, he sells it. They, they really picked the right actor for the role. Yeah, and that was his breakout. Like He was just doing like frat boy comedies leading up to that, and then he got an Oscar nomination, and he's been Tom Hanks since. So one of the most important in his career, too. So I have it at number three, a movie that you should 100% see if you have not seen, Brian. It is called The Burbs from 1989. Have oh. you seen this one? Nope, haven't seen this one. So this is a fairly early film for him. It is a satire of suburban life, and it has that Return of the Living Dead and Repo Man 80s anarchy the world isn't quite right energy to it where also things just escalate and escalate in hilarious, but also like dramatic and slightly genre tinged ways. Oh my God. This movie blew my mind. 
I was watching. I was like, how is this movie not a classic? I don't think it sticks every bit of every landing where I was like excited to see where it would go. I don't want to say more because I really want you to see this one and talk more with you about it. Well, the description you've given it so far is really selling it for me because, you know, I love Return of the Living Dead and Repo Man. So I got to see this. I'm just going to give a like a log line that doesn't spoil anything outside of the first like five or ten minutes, which is that Tom Hanks is a dad in a suburban neighborhood. That's like a very pristine suburban neighborhood, but there is one house with weird neighbors and Tom Hanks is very suspicious of the weird neighbors. And on his week off, he decides he's going to learn a little bit more about them. So it's it's a terrific movie. I have this as just the cusp of a exceptionally good and a tour day good. Okay, well, I'm very curious. I got to check that one out. Yeah. So that's the burbs. Brian, what's your number two? So at my number two, I have what you're probably thinking is going to be my number one. But I I tried for at least a little objectivity here. Number two best slash favorite Tom Hanks film. I'm going to say Forrest Gump. This is one that's kind of a biopic for the whole country. It's like one individual standing in for all of America in the second half of the 20th century. So you've got a guy stupid is as stupid does so he has some kind of intellectual disability but as they say in tropic thunder doesn't go full retard uh he's just a a low iq person who is becoming entangled in grand events beyond his understanding he just stumbles from one historic event to the next and uh, really has a lot of iconic Robert Zemeckis visual effects. Like they recreate a lot of historical footage so that Tom Hanks can seamlessly be inserted in like Carson interviews with John Lennon and Forrest Gump is just sitting there in the footage and a bunch of other examples of this like uh, Vietnam War rallies and all kinds of things. Like, uh, uh, he meets um, John F. Kennedy, and they have the shot there of him speaking to John F. Kennedy. Pretty interesting visually. I like this one a lot. I I find it inspiring. There's, like, a a sequence where he's running across America that I I found really moving. But this is one that's polarizing for people. I've spoken to people who really do not like Forrest Gump. They feel very strongly that Pulp Fiction was cheated at the 1994 Oscars. I I like it. I don't know. I I like to go to the Bubba Gump restaurant and eat shrimp. So your mileage may vary, just as with Green Mile, but uh, I'm a big Forrest Gump fan. I I actually have Forrest Gump at a high good. I have it ranked 26th. I don't hate Forrest Gump. I rewatched it not for this project, but because I was rewatching movies I previously had on my 2009 Top 100, which we talked about in our Eternal Sunshine in the Spotless Mind episode. I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. I think as much as it is like a portrait of a generation of America, the way that it like lumps all counterculture things into one (laughs) basically boogeyman for Jenny. Yeah, it's a conservative film, which is rare among Hollywood blockbusters. It's like liberalism is the enemy. Well, and it's not just that, but like, I don't know, like Clint Eastwood movies are conservative too. And, I can understand that you would have that perspective, but it's just over the top. 
boomer version of anything that isn't mainstream patriotism is uh what jenny did that got her aids like <laughs> she was a black panther oh that's why she got aids okay oh but she also was a stripper oh and she also did drugs and she just so happened to be involved in every single one of those things and those were all filled with all the riffraff and it kind of does a disservice because like a big proud thing about that era was how prominent the counterculture became and like made some real important cultural changes with it. So right. I did find that a little bit repugnant. Right. Right. I, I would say one, one counter argument is that she is also drifting from one event to the next kind of in a way that's beyond her control. Right. Like they, they both got the feather thing going on. Yeah. It's like the dark mirror to, uh, to Hanks. Right. Like, but I, I agree with you. It's technically well-made and, I think the Vietnam section in that is so good. Mm -hmm. I mean, it helps to have like seven of the 40 greatest songs of all time. You're piping in as like this stuff is going on. But that has really funny segments with uh, like you have the irony of the war going on. But then they're also talking about like all the different types of shrimp and stuff. I thought that was the best part of the movie personally. Mm -hmm. But yeah, not not my top five, but uh, it's actually the third highest rated on Letterboxd out of Oh, even on Letterboxd. Wow. Yeah, it's on the IMDb top 10 or something, too. That doesn't surprise me at all that it's high up on IMDb, but that it's high up on Letterboxd is a little surprising to me. They tend to be a little more snobby, film bro, hipster. Right, right. A little more cynical. But what about your number two pick, Dan? Yeah. So a movie I saw yesterday for the first time had never seen before. Brian, have you seen Cloud Atlas? I haven't. I was very curious about the trailer, started reading the book, which I picked up at the airport, didn't get very far into the book, so I never saw the movie. But I'm curious. So tell us about Cloud Atlas. This movie, it blew my fucking mind, this movie. Oh my god. Like, I almost just wanted to put it at number one tonight just to, like, emphasize how much I got out of this movie when I watched it yesterday. I would give it a tour de good. It's not flawless, but I think it transcends its flaws. It's a three hour movie telling six different timelines where each timeline has almost exactly the same cast in different roles. But even more than that, there's like all of these things that tie the stories together and you don't know exactly what all of them are until it like becomes a little bit more clear. And even the themes kind of crystallize together into a very moving way very adventurous it's got like a blend of historical drama with like future sci-fi it's made by the wachowskis who made the uh who made matrix and a couple other sci-fi movies so it's got some like fun sci-fi stuff going on but also this a political thriller with like a journalism investigation in different timelines and like kind of this weird farce about a retirement home just all this stuff going on together that doesn't seem like it should fit and it does for me. And I was like really moved by it and found it very impressive. I get why a lot of people didn't like it. I loved it. I'm not saying you're going to adore it the way that I did, but I think you would get a kick out of it. I Brian. think I probably will like it. The trailer looked like something I would like. Um, and it's I just got kind of tripped up by the book. So I, I have been meaning to get around to watching it. So now is maybe going to finally be the kick in the pants. I wouldn't say this were it not in the first like five or ten minutes of the movie. In one of the timelines, Tom Hanks plays a gangster. 
So he he appears in if, maybe all six timelines, but he he he's around a lot. And in one of them, he plays like a, a tough gangster, which is so against type that it actually made me laugh out loud. <laughs> That's another thing is this is like kind of cheesy. It's like you need to be able to laugh along with the over the top drama. And but while still soaking it in a little bit like Titanic, but like maybe more over the top than that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, man, great spectacle. I I dug this movie so much and I choked up a few times, too. So Cloud Atlas 2012. Go see it. Cool. On that note, I want to give an honorable mention to Polar Express, which, mm. of course, also has Tom Hanks in many different roles. Yeah. Not a great film. No. I do not like it very much. <laughs> One I've seen multiple times in theaters because there was a period before Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey came out where they did like annual 3D re-releases of Polar Express. Mm. So like 2004, 2005, 2006, maybe 2007, I was going and <laughs> re-watching Polar Express in 3D. Yeah. But uh, yeah, not a cinematic masterpiece, but you get a lot of hanks for your buck. You do, yeah. And so we're here now at the the big moment, the key time where I say my number one Tom Hanks pick here on our first Thanksgiving. And I have got another Robert Zemeckis film. It's Castaway, where you get only Tom Hanks. Hanks and Hanks alone for the bulk of the runtime of the film because he's trapped on a desert island. He survives a plane crash and then he has to survive four years alone on an island and he ends up talking to a volleyball i i like this one a lot i don't know there aren't a whole lot of actors who can sell a one-man show for a a feature film runtime and hanks is among that proud few completely agree so you've seen all of them dan so you must have seen this one so you got castaway thoughts I love Castaway. I, I have it as an exceptionally good. I have it at number 10, including the Toy Stories. So it it, it was number seven right behind Saving Private Ryan for me. I, I'm with you there. A tour de force uh, acting performance. I have it right up there with Big. I have it at number three on his best five performances list I made. And I, I think you nailed it. I think what he is able to do to really sell you on this uh, terrible journey he's been through and just be a screen magnet for two hours is is mind-blowing. What do you think of this whole segment at the end when he comes back? I like it. That's, like, not saying enough. I think it's important that it's there because if you haven't seen the movie, the whole time he's been on the island, he's kept this locket with him that's got a picture of his fiance Helen Hunt, and then he gets back to the real world. He survives. He gets picked up by a ship and brought back home. And he's been gone for years. And so she's moved on. And she has a kid with somebody else. And I think if I were in this situation, I would pull an Odysseus and, like, kill the guy with an axe like Odysseus does. <laughs> but that's not what Tom Hanks does. And so you get, like, 15 minutes where he's twiddling his thumbs trying to figure out, well, what the hell am I going to do now? Because he's come from this this alternate world where the only thing that mattered was staying alive. And now he's got modern conveniences and, like, no direction anymore. 
and what is he going to do? And the film doesn't really resolve that. He he makes a little speech about how the sun is going to continue coming up and he's got to figure out what he's going to do, but he doesn't know what it is yet. And then the movie ends. Yeah, I kind of like the ending too, it, but my impression is that Zemeckis and then this other writer, William Broyles Jr. Also wrote Apollo 13 and Polar Express. Huh. Um, but that that they like spent hours trying to figure out what was both poignant, but also plausible, but also satisfying. And this was like the best cross section they could come up with. And they got about as good as you could get. Like, I'm not I don't have a rewrite. It feels almost there for me, but like it's missing just one little extra spice that I can't quite put my finger on. But I think it's good, too. I wanted even more of like less of the the ex-fiance and more of the readjusting to human life after being away for four fucking years, dude. That's so long. Yeah, yeah. When it did a four years later smash cut, I was like, what? Four years? That's a thousand days. That No, that's 1500 days. I think he says that. Mm -hmm. That's insane. How did he survive for four years? Yeah, it's like it goes from him doing the very most basic things and then he's Jumanji man. Yeah. But I, I like the way they do it, though, because like, you know, he's like sipping water out of leaves just barely having anything to eat like he, he finds a coconut or something and then the the smash cut to four years later is him spearing a fish which i think if you're gonna jump that way is a good way to do it it's dramatic and just instantly shows that he has progressed i feel like he could have done the same thing with four months later i feel like he would have made that much progress then but maybe not he needs to have fully snapped i guess you're right but he needs the big castaway beard he needs to be full robinson crusoe yeah, that's true. Yeah, but good movie for sure. So, okay. I've I've talked at length about that one that I, I like. Uh, and of course, what other movie do you have somebody just having their soul ripped out because they lose a volleyball? Having their soul... Oh, you were saying there is no other movie. There's no that. other film like that. I thought that was a quiz. Like, name the other movie. That <laughs> no, I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't trying. Because, I mean, here he just has to have a full meltdown because a volleyball floats away. Yeah. Wilson! Okay. Wilson! Last thought is that, so, obviously, Tom Hanks and Tim Allen are Woody and Buzz in Toy Story. But both have also played roles where they have meaningful relationships with a Wilson. <laughs> is that the neighbor dude? Yes, the neighbor on Home Improvement is Wilson. It's funny. These are the connections that I make. Yeah. I'm sure I'm not the first. Okay, but I've taken the spotlight for too long, Dan. What is your number one? So the only reason I almost did not want to select this topic is because it felt a little silly to essentially have a list whose purpose was for me to talk about how much I love perhaps my favorite movie, That Thing You Do from 1996. And heck, the other top five we did was Pixar's, which... Toy Story 3 was another Tom Hanks movie, um, which is another one of my favorite movies. And I would have it number two with That Thing You Do at number one if we had included the Toy Stories. But yes, That Thing You Do, 1996. Is it the greatest Tom Hanks movie? I mean, I kind of think it is, but I'm biased. I think this movie is just a delight from start to finish. It's, it's about a fictional band in a fictional 
uh, musical world that is a very close facsimile. And they make a one hit wonder song that is probably well, not probably I'm on record as saying my favorite movie song ever. Just this uh, ridiculously catchy pop song called That Thing You Do. And it's all about how this band comes together. Very tight, fleet, funny. It's almost two hours, but it really it has the pace of like an 85 minute movie. It just boom, boom, boom goes. If you watch the theatrical cut, the extended cut has more story to it, which I think is good if you already really like the story, but not good if you are trying to get the movie in its pure form, which is a shame because I think if you buy it on Amazon Prime and stuff, it's like you get the extended cut by default, which I would push hard to do the theatrical cut for for any newbies to it. But anyways, it's a great movie. Tom Hanks is like not the main star, but funnily enough, like the main star is uh, Guy Patterson. And he is played by Tom Everett Scott, who appeared in La La Land. And I lost my mind when he did as the the drummer. And he looks a lot like Hanks did in his early 80s comedies with like the curly hair and the boyish face and stuff. Really just a, a movie whose charm is through the roof. Every detail is polished. Every uh, scene that we get has some bit of love in it that you can rewind and watch the scene again and find three little details or like dry jokes that they hit in there. The ending, some people don't like it, just kind of nobody has bad consequences and they all diaspora into different ways. And the two people we like kiss each other. So, you know, I can see not being wild about the ending, but I like it because it it doesn't give us anything more dour than we need. It's it's a it's a light, happy movie with a light, happy ending. And it's got a lot of secret weapons in it. Ethan Embry makes every movie better. Steve Zahn makes every movie better. Charlize Theron is in there as an early love interest. Chris Ellis makes movies better as he's in there. Giovanni Rabisi's great secret weapon. He, he makes every movie he's in better. Just a lot of people elevating the material. Love that thing you do. It's my number one. I, I would talk about this movie, watch this movie all day, any day. I knew it was coming. For what it's worth, I have seen this one. I I hadn't seen your number three, your number two. I have seen that thing you do. It's good. Yeah, if you haven't seen this one, check it out. I don't know exactly where it would fall. I obviously haven't watched all the Hankses, and I got to work on that. Towards the towards the top of the pack, it's it's good. Good soundtrack. Good actors. Yeah, amazing soundtrack. Yeah, and by the way, I, it feels a good pick for the culmination of Thanksgiving because it was directed by Tom Hanks. Yeah, I feel like he put a lot of himself in that one, had a lot of creative input. Yes, he wrote the movie, too. There you go. He produced it. So it's 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 very apropos. It's it's Hanksy. And he plays a record label agent executive type guy who's not quite as warm as normal. So I think it was a chance for him to play a little snarkier than normal. But he's still likable. It's not He's not unlikable, but he's just not quite as warm and fuzzy as he often is. And I also wanted to say that we had two of the same, if you count our number six picks. If you don't, I don't know that we had had even one that because they swapped around. But if you count the six, then we did have two of the same because we both chose um, Catch Me If You Can and Saving Private Ryan. But I think you're right. I think if we just go by our top five, that we no overlap. That's a surprise, and that's good spread across our hanks. I, I'm still trying to figure out how the math of that works because they they were there, but I guess it was 
at six and then one of us had it in our five and one of us didn't and yeah i don't know i gotta look at a, a chart but it's it, we're not too too far apart like we we have some similarities and some of yours were in my next five right right i will share that next five so at number six i had saving private ryan at number seven i had castaway at number eight i had another movie that i would recommend to you brian have you seen joe versus the volcano that's the title that's always most intrigued me. I'm also a fan of Steamer Trunks, which I know play a key role. Yes. Uh, but I've not seen it. I loved this movie. It's got Meg Ryan in three different roles. It was the first time they appeared on screen together. First of three times. And uh, she plays three different roles in it. It's kind of weird. And it's got a little bit of that same anarchy energy, especially at the beginning. But actually kind of throughout. But man, I watched that and was kind of blown away same thing with the burbs i think you'd like that one too yeah i like i said i've been curious number nine you've got mail i find this movie so so charming i think it's his best straight ahead rom-com and at number 10 i have captain phillips from 2013 have you seen that one i've seen captain phillips yep i like that one a lot that one i felt bad for the pirates yeah once you go up against the american government they don't stand a chance, and then when the American government finally makes its move, they just kill them with a sniper rifle, like, boom, 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 they're dead. They didn't even have a chance to do anything. It's mostly what's good is Tom Hanks' performance. Oh, and I think the pirate captain, the look at me, I'm the captain now guy, is terrific in that too. Oh yeah, he's good, but I wanted him to have more agency, and I don't know. Well, that's one of the reasons I think that movie works, at least from my perspective, is like, it gives you uh, some humanity in the villains, but they're also still pirates. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're grody and yeah. Yeah. So it's the right balance for me on that. S something that's interesting to me, though, is that uh, that's about the Somali pirates. And if you read about the Barbary War, which was a conflict that America went through in like 1800 when Thomas Jefferson was president, Barbary is Somalia. Oh, man. So like we've had problems between the american government and the somali pirates like as long as america has been around wow can i hit you with some uh some rapid fires okay had i included the toy stories my top five would have been toy story 2 cloud atlas toy story 1 toy story 3 and that thing you do and i knew it was going to be something like that which is why i said let's not talk about the toy stories right yeah. What about, what is your bottom Tom Hanks? My bottom five Tom Hanks movies. At number five, I have The Polar Express at a low, not, not good. I don't hate, hate it. I think there, it has like some fun dream logic to it. And you get your Hanks in, like you said. But man, if you go listen to our Christmas Carol episode, we talked about the gimmicky thrill ride segments this movie is like 75% gimmicky thrill ride segments. Right. I'd say it's one of the worst offenders of taking a short story and bloating it to feature length. Agreed. Number four, I have a movie I would bet money you have not seen and perhaps not even heard of. It's from 1985. It's called The Man with One Red Shoe. And so this is like a spy comedy, but it's quite bad. <laughs> The premise is, and it's not a terrible premise, basically there's this struggle within the CIA and one person is sabotaging another and basically like tells one of the CIA chiefs that 
the secret agent is at the airport now. And basically Tom Hanks, who's just a normal guy, gets mistaken as a secret agent and then kind of bumbles his way through some people thinking he's a secret agent. It sounds funny, but it none of the jokes really clicked for me. And the story didn't really click. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. And I I think I've only heard of it because I read the list of Tom Hanks films. Yeah. But have you seen Burn After Reading? No. So that's a Coen Brothers movie that I highly recommend, which is about case of mistaken identity leading to a, a spy intrigue story. But it probably much better than, than this other one. Yeah, because I was like, ah, I want this to be good, but it's not. So I'll have to look that one up. Number three, I had Mazes and Monsters which we already talked about. So number two and number one, both just piss me off. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen either of them. Probably not. Number two is Radio Flyer. Are you familiar with this one? Radio Flyer. It's the name of, of a famous brand of wagons, which is why it might tickle your brain a little bit. Like the famous red wagon is a radio flyer. But the premise is that it's kind of like a... Uh, Wonder Years retrospective with Tom Hanks as the narrator. But the whole story is about how the guy's, the kid's stepdad, the kid is played by a very young Elijah Wood, how his stepdad just beats him all the time and is a drunk. That's like the entire plot. And it ends with one of the most bizarre endings that I have ever seen. Do you mind if I spoil it for you or are you interested in watching this? Go go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So he and his brother are like, scrounging for parts throughout the movie to add to their radio flyer. And because they're like, we can fly away from our abusive stepdad. And so they finally get everything and they go down a hill. But Elijah Wood hops off of the wagon before it takes off. And just as their like crazy, angry, drunk stepdad gets there, they're like trying to launch off of this hill. But they're, they they want to like take this great jump off of a ramp or a hill or something. And the movie basically says, and my brother, he just flew away and I never saw him again. And it doesn't make any, it's not a fantasy movie at all, but then that's what it says about the brother. And like, it's trying to be ambiguous. Like, did he die? Did the stepfather beat him to death? I don't know. It's ambiguous, but like it is, it lands with such a thud. It's so stupid. I hate this movie. I don't want to talk about it anymore. They don't even pipe in good retro songs. If you're going to do it like a Sandlot style movie, give us a lot of throwback songs in the soundtrack. They even botched that in Radio Flyer. So that's my number two worst. Okay, so I've not heard of Radio Flyer, but I'm reading about it now. And Radio Flyer was written by David Mickey Evans, who was the writer and narrator of The Sandlot. So that strikes me as very strange that it's so... Whoa. And it was the next year. Uh, Radio Flyer was 92, Sandlot was 93. This is this is really weird. Yeah, there's a lot of connections. I think it's got the same director, too. Really? Let me see. The Sandlot, directed by... Oh, it was directed, written, and narrated by David Mickey Evans. Never mind. Radio Flyer was directed by Richard Donner, who was the director of The Goonies and some other stuff. Yeah, I haven't heard of this one. Seems weird. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. What if you had the Sandlot, but instead of a whole cast of fun kids playing baseball and being chased by a slobbery dog, what if you instead had Adam Baldwin playing a drunk, abusive alcoholic all the time? <laughs> <laughs> but my, my least favorite 
Tom Hanks movie and one of my least favorite movies, period. Extremely loud and incredibly close. Are, are you familiar with this one, Brian? No. So it was a Best Picture nominee, but it is, oh, it made me so angry. It's a story about a possibly autistic kid whose father, played by Tom Hanks and seen in flashbacks, dies in 9-11. And just imagine the most emotionally manipulative, cheesy, poorly plotted, tries to make you feel sad because of 9-11 movie that you could think of. And you've only gotten halfway to how tacky, extremely loud and incredibly close is because it's about an annoying eight year old. Why would you make a movie intentionally about an annoying eight year old? I don't know. Maybe he's older than eight. I don't know how old he's supposed to be, but I did not like this movie at all. I would give this a one out of eight. (laughs) It's the only one of his 54 movies that I would give a one out of eight to Radio Flyer barely escapes with a low two. There you go. Wow. Well, I'm glad you put in the the hours for this, Dan. Since I did, I'm going to hit you with a few more quick hits, if you don't mind, Brian. I don't know if you're trying to go to bed. No, that's okay. Five best performances. Cloud Atlas at number five. This is just my take, of course. Cloud Atlas at number five, just because he plays so many different roles and some of them are so out of character for him. At number four, I have Forrest Gump. I almost put this one higher because he really carries that movie. But when I most recently watched it, he goes a little too far on the vocal tics for me. Jen mm-hmm. A. Like, I got tired of hearing him say that that way. Right. That's exactly what I was just going to say. So, yep. yeah. Number three, I have Castaway. Number two, I have Big, as discussed. Number one, a movie that only briefly got mentioned once, but I quite like, Philadelphia. He is utterly transformed in Philadelphia as a lawyer suffering from AIDS, trying to get compensation for being unjustly fired. Did you say you've seen this one, Brian? Yeah, I did see that one. Yep. Um, It's a little bit middle brow slog for me. Um, I have it as a six because I think it's like the best version of a middle brow slog. Mm -hmm. Just really well made with terrific performances and like genuinely moving to me. So yeah, it's Oscar Beatty, but it would be pretty high up there for me. Yeah. Five most overrated movies. Oh, and here's how I calculated most overrated and most underrated. So I put where my rank was and then I sorted by letterbox rating and saw how big the gap was. And so the bigger the gap, the more overrated or underrated from my perspective. So most overrated, extremely loud and incredibly close, followed by the Polar Express, followed by Radio Flyer, followed by two we already talked about, Forrest Gump and The Green Mile. I have The Green Mile at number 40. And it's number four on the Letterboxd rating. It's fourth out of all of Tom Hanks's movies. Wait, on Letterboxd it's that high? Yeah. Wow. That movie's got a, a big following. Okay. Well, I like I said, I like it. But polarizing for sure. It's definitely that and Forrest Gump are the two that I've heard all, all, opinions all along the gamut. Five most underrated. At number five, I have The Burbs, which was in my top five. At number four, I have a movie I haven't mentioned yet called The Great Buck Howard which I had at number 23, it's actually stars his son. This is one of the only movies where he's like the fourth or fifth cast person, but he's not a cameo. He's still a character, but he's just not one of the top two. But his son, Colin Hanks, plays the star. So it almost I almost disqualified it because Hanks was only like the fifth most prominent character. But I like this one. It's about like a small time performer magician. I think you'd like it too. Maybe not quite as much as me, Brian, but uh, it has John Malkovich as this like, washed up magician 
doing small shows, and I think you'd like it. Okay. I also had Joe versus the Volcano. At number two, I had Punchline, which is a movie where he played a comedian, a stand-up comedian, like the same premise as Funny People by Judd Apatow that was made in like 2008 or whatever. It's the same premise minus the cancer scare in Funny People. But he plays this up-and-coming comedian with a hard life, and Sally Field co-stars as this other up-and-coming comedian. Just a very charming dramedy that I liked, but apparently I'm one of the only ones because it's ranked 44 out of 54 on audience rating. And then at number one, I had Cloud Atlas as most underrated. I had it at number four overall, including the Toy Stories. And the users, the Letterbox users, had it at number 26. All right, maybe I have too many. I had a few more that I was going to bounce through here, but the only other ones I wanted to recommend, you actually, I have already brought most of them up. But two others, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Have you seen that one, Brian? The one that came out a couple years ago? No. I saw the trailer. I wanted to. You know, after they had him play Walt Disney, they had him play Mr. Rogers. I feel like I got to check that one out. Yeah, I think you'd like that one. Also, his most recent movie, Finch. Are you familiar with this one, Brian? Finch? Oh, this is the one. Was this the one with the robot? Yes. So it's basically Wally. Except there's a human companion and a dog companion to Wally. So this one was also Apple Plus exclusive. So of course I did not see it. Okay. Um, I don't know anybody who has Apple Plus. I suspect Dan used other faculties to to watch this one. That's true. I did. <laughs> but I found it somewhere on the the great digital ether. Well done. But I think you would like it. It's got. I mean. The Wally apocalyptic stuff going on mm -hmm. and then some goofy robot stuff. And then, I don't know. We haven't really talked about dog movies. I don't know how you feel about dog movies, but this is a very much a dog movie. So that too. Last couple ones. These ones aren't rankings so much as assorted thoughts. Movies where he plays against type. Volunteers is an early comedy where he plays like a smarmy college brat. But the weird thing is he talks in that transatlantic accent or whatever you call it, mm -hmm. like the Catherine Hepburn accent. Can you imagine Tom Hanks talking like that? I feel like there's a role, one of the characters that he is in Polar Express where he's got an accent kind of like that. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But that, but he's the star of the movie the whole time. Wow. So, yeah. But that's actually where he first co-starred with Rita Wilson, his longtime wife. Oh. Very last one. The five most attractive female co-stars. I'll limit it to just a couple of special highlights in, in Tom Hanks movies. Da Vinci Code, Audrey Tutu is a co-star. Great Buck Howard, Emily Blunt is in there. Okay. And Meg Ryan in the in uh, the first two ones that she's in. I had forgotten how beautiful Meg Ryan was uh, earlier on in her career. So, yeah, he's been opposite some smoke shows. In fact, all three of the Da Vinci Code ones, you could uh, have, have very beautiful co-stars. Yeah. So Da Vinci Code, I mean, those books are like, you know, pulp paperbacks that white dudes in middle age buy at the airport. And it, so all of those kinds of books, like the the Clive Custler's. It's like an Indiana Jones type thing where you got like the, the action-y star and he's got a different woman in every one, like a James Bond right. setup. I did not picture Tom Hanks reading those books. 
Like, that was not my my picturing of the character. I think that's a flaw in those movies. So I watched the first movie and, and didn't keep up with after that. Um, of course, Da Vinci Code is actually the second story. Angels and Demons happens first, but they made it the second film because Da Vinci Code made money. But, I don't know, pretty good, pretty good book. I, I would sit down and watch the other ones, but I just haven't gotten around to it. I thought the first one was okay. Yeah. Did you say you've seen The Terminal? Yeah, so is that your number one pick? Because in that one, he's with Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yeah, <laughs> that's my number one, most beautiful. <laughs> I have watched that one just recently, yes. Kind of a silly performance from Tom Hanks because he's doing this, like, balky, exaggerated, fictitious foreigner. I think you could write, like, a whole dissertation on that movie because it's got, like, all of this post-9-11 baggage going along with it. It's like... All this airport stuff, but immigrant stuff, but airport security is, are they a good guy? Or are they a bad guy? It doesn't have quite enough story for me, but I, I really found it charming overall. Just Ch Tom Hanks is like a, a goober and he's wooing Catherine Zeta-Jones. Rare for Spielberg to just make a comedy. Yeah. Oh, and it's funny too. Yeah. All right. Thank you for letting me feast this thanks this Thanksgiving Brian. Oh man, I'm I'm just trying to process you watching 30 movies while you have COVID or whatever, 20 movies. Yeah. And it, this week really must have been a fever dream. To be fair, there's a couple of these movies where I'm looking back at them and I'm like, okay, I would definitely watch that. And I remember things about it, but I also remember being in the COVID haze as I watched it too. <laughs> Still able to formulate a thought on it, but not necessarily my sharpest viewing experience, but wow. I still got through them all. So. Well, that's quite a journey. Yeah. All right, Brian. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, and to you listeners, happy Thanksgiving. And what, do, what are we going to be watching next week, Brian? Hit us with something. All right. So, well, for our next selection, I wanted to pick something that was timely in terms of the calendar, so kind of seasonal. Uh, but I also wanted to pick for the first time in a while... A movie that I have not actually watched before. I tend to fall back on things that I'm familiar with and just want to share, which can provide some good content, but I also think it's good every once in a while to bring to the table something that's new to both of us. And so we're coming up now on Memorial Day, right? That's the one that starts out the summer. Yes. Yeah. And it's when the pools open, usually, at least around me. And so... I have picked out a movie called The Swimmer, and I, I just know it by reputation. I've heard it's a little odd, a little dark, and it has intrigued me what little I know about it. Uh, it stars Burt Lancaster, starring Burt Lancaster. I, I, for some reason, I was thinking Burt Reynolds, but yes, it's Burt Lancaster, who I don't know if I've seen in anything, uh, but he is the star, and... It's about like a, a midlife crisis, I think. I'm going to, but I haven't seen it. So I'm going to see what it's about. And so will Dan. You, have you watched this one before? No, never, never even heard of this one. Okay. But it's, uh, it's about pools as you might experience now that summer is almost upon us. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. So join me in exploring that, in diving into the swimmer, Dan. All right. I will look forward to it. And thank you, Brian. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Tom Hanks, for a uh, wild, wild week. 
in addition to everything else going on, binging deep and hard on Tom Hanks. I'm glad you're feeling better, Dan. Yeah. So we'll see you next week, listeners. Have a good one. See you then. Thank you.